Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple, so when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the mother's baby, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. An elderly man ready to die, an eight-day-old baby, and a teen mom newly married. God providentially brings these three together for this moment. Simeon, a devout Jew, has been eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. He has followed the law and listened to the prophets. He has lived on faith in the promise of a Messiah who will come and rescue Israel from its captivity. He has waited a long time. Perhaps you too can relate to a man who has lived with hope as yet unfulfilled. God keeps his promise as God always does. He leads Simeon to the temple he has been to so many times before. Simeon beholds the fulfillment of the law in a baby. He takes the baby Jesus in his arms. Simeon's own savior comes in the weakness of a baby a baby who is the power of God in flesh. Simeon proclaims that Jesus is not only God's salvation in the glory of Israel, but also a light for revelation to the nations. How will the nations respond to this light? Simeon looks at Mary and says, your son is appointed as a sign that will be opposed. And this opposition will reveal the deepest thoughts of many hearts. But why? Why will so many people reject Christ, the one who has come to rescue them? I think Jesus brings clarity clarity to this uh, many years later when he has a conversation with Nicodemus. And he so famously says uh, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son in John 3.16. If we jump ahead to verse 19, he says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. 
But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. We have seen this play out in Jesus' day from generation to generation and in our own time. So what does this mean for you? I believe it will affect you and I twofold. Uh, First, as a member of the body of Christ, God, the, the church at large, and secondly, in the personal and unique call on your life. And I'll start with the first. If you choose to live in the light and wholeheartedly follow Christ, it will cost you something. Let me be clear. The gift of salvation is free. It is unmerited. Uh, it is unearned. It is a gift. So salvation is free. It is great. Not by works so that no one, no one may boast. So your salvation in Christ is secure. When I'm talking about costing you something, I am, I'm saying that you will experience trials, hardships, and rejection, but you will also gain intimacy with Christ, a life of purpose, and the revelation of his glory. In this context, what does it mean for us as believers to live in the light? Does this mean that we are holier than thou, that we are better than everyone else, or model citizens? Absolutely not. Uh, We were all sinners when Christ died for us. So we're all in the same boat. Living in the light is to say that we step out from hiding in the darkness. And that we receive Jesus' offer to flood our heart with light. With his light. We reveal who we really are, believing that Christ's death on the cross takes away our sin and makes us clean. Trusting that the light of Christ is not a scary spotlight, but a healing balm. We recognize with the psalmist that even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. We say yes to Jesus' invitation to fill us with his light so that there are no dark corners, that our whole life will be radiant. As a believer, you reflect the light and love of Christ in the world. And this is unwelcome to those who reject Christ, and even more so to principalities and powers of darkness that are at work in the world. In many ways, I don't think we have been equipped, and I'm talking about the church in America at large. Um, I am not talking about Emmaus. I'm not talking about our pastors. This is not an invitation for us to stand in judgment and critique of our leaders. I am talking about you and I. In many ways, we have not been equipped to experience rejection, let alone persecution, for our faith because for so many decades, the Christian faith in America has been in a position of dominance. It has generally benefited people my age and older to call ourselves Christian. It may have helped us professionally or politically to be known member of a church or somewhat vocal about our religious views. This has had an influence on the church, no doubt. We could comfortably proclaim our faith and still be liked and respected. I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy being liked and respected, and I find it actually somewhat addicting. If I can follow God and still be praised by people, that seems like a win-win to me. So what happens when the masses no longer like and love what followers of Christ are saying and doing? How will the church, Christ's beloved bride, respond? We will either adjust who we are and what we proclaim to stay relevant and included, 
or we will pick up our cross and we will follow our Savior wherever he leads, whatever the cost. And from my perspective, I don't think it's been good for the church in America to be the popular kid on the block, maybe even the bully at times. We have become almost entirely removed from the idea of living as strangers and aliens in a world that is not our home. Please do not think I stand in judgment of you. I am talking about myself as well. So when our culture seems to be shifting, and I'm sure that's debatable, uh, but when our culture seems to be shifting and the church is no longer in the same position of worldly power, should we fear and long for the good old days? I think not. God is brilliant, and God loves you dearly. He knows that true faith flourishes in the midst of opposition. I believe he is and will use this shift to prune, refine, and strengthen us. He is, uh, he's, well, I'll say, he's refreed me from these things, maybe you as well. He is freeing me and maybe you from a love of reputation and security that we may find our identity and safety in him. He is growing our capacity to love without the need to be loved in return. He is shifting our focus away from artificial comfort to defend the rights of the poor, the orphan, the foreigner, and the widow. He is preserving a remnant that may lose the love and affection of our neighbors, but gain the presence and power of God in our lives. This is the Christianity that believers around the world have known for centuries. Do not think that God has forsaken you if you are wholeheartedly pursuing him and yet experiencing tribulation. Perhaps there is opposition against you from people and from spiritual powers and powers of darkness because you are doing and being exactly who God called you to be. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The spirit of glory and God rests on you. Think about that. To have the, the power and spirit of God resting on your very being. <clears throat> we not only count the cost as part of the larger body of Christ, his beloved church, but also in the unique call on each of our lives. And sometimes your greatest calling is also your greatest suffering. Simeon's prophecy gives a foreshadowing that this will be true of Jesus and of his mother Mary, and perhaps for you too. He warns Mary, a sword will pierce your very soul. Mary's greatest call was to give life to and nurture and raise Jesus as his mom. But it would break her heart. Imagine her nursing her baby and knowing that many would oppose him. What pain did she carry throughout his life? Have you experienced your child or a dear friend being rejected? Doesn't it hurt you even more than it hurts them? Her mother's heart to defend and protect her son would be crushed as she would watch him be mocked and crucified. 
We grieve for that which we love. So I want to ask you, what keeps you awake at night? Who are you burdened for? The founder of the Justice House Prayer Movement says, your tears are the highway to your destiny. He goes on to say, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out. When you find something like that, draw close to it and you'll hear your name called. This kind of hardship as a believer comes not so much from what you stand for, but who God calls you to love and minister to. As your love for Jesus grows and you surrender more and more to him, I believe he will turn around and enlarge your capacity to love others. He may place a particular person, people group, or cause on your soul that you cannot shake. When you enter into the world of intercessory prayer motivated by love, that is a unique kind of ache. As agents of the light, you are coming against the powers of Satan. Like the Apostle Paul before you, God sends you out to rescue people from the powers of darkness and bring them the light of Christ. In Acts 26, Paul recounts Christ saying to him, Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people. When I think of believers throughout history who devoted themselves to Christ and bore his sufferings, I think of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who criticized Hitler's ideology and raised opposition to the persecution of the Jews. He argued that the church had a responsibility to act against this kind of policy. He eventually broke away from the Nazi-supported German Christian movement and started a breakaway church and underground seminary. Worried uh, about a fear of being asked to take an oath to Hitler or be arrested, Bonhoeffer left Germany for the United States in June of 1939. After less than two years, he returned to Germany because he knew he could not seek sanctuary while his fellow believers faced the evils of Hitler and his regime. On his return to Germany, Bonhoeffer was denied the right to speak in public or publish his writings. He joined the German resistance movement under the guise of being involved in German military intelligence. Bonhoeffer's involvement in helping Jews escape Germany led to his, his arrest in 1943, where he was imprisoned for a year and a half by the Gestapo. Now Bonhoeffer reflects um, in letters from prison that he wrote, and he's reflecting, and he wrote this from prison, uh, and he says this, there remains an experience of incomparable value. We have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of outcasts, the suspects, the maltreated, in short, from the perspective of those who suffer. Mere waiting and looking on is not Christian behavior. Christians are called to compassion and to action. After a failed bomb plot to assassinate Hitler in 1944, Bonhoeffer was transferred to Buchenwald concentration camp and finally Flossenburg concentration camp. He continued to minister to his fellow prisoners and one of the prisoners, Payne Best, said this of him, Bonhoeffer was different, just quite calm and normal, seemingly perfectly at ease. His soul really shone in the dark desperation of our prison. 
He was one of the very few men I have ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. On April 8, 1945, Bonhoeffer was sentenced to death by hanging. Like many of the conspirators, he was hung by a wire to prolong his death. Just before his execution, he asked a fellow inmate to relate a message to Bishop George Bell. This is the end, for me, the beginning of life. The camp doctor who witnessed the execution of Bonhoeffer later wrote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Why would anyone sign up for this? Hebrews 12 says it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. The, new, the NLT translation says it was the joy awaiting him. There is a joy available to you in knowing Christ. Perhaps like Jesus did in the garden, you have distress about the suffering you may be called to endure. This is not a message about religious duty. It is an invitation. God loves you no matter, no matter how hard you go after him. Your salvation is secure. It's an invitation to go deeper, to know the heart of God for you and for the world, to be giving greater understanding of the mysteries of the word and of heaven, to experience true friendship with the one who knows you better than you know yourself and who loves you more than you know. Please join me in prayer. Living God, for your people who are weary, may you restore to them the joy of their salvation. Lighten their load. Help them keep their eyes on you, the author and perfecter of their faith. Help us to trust you with a call on our lives. Help us to not be afraid and to know that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. May we live to glorify you, our consolation, our light, and our hope. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.